Welcome to WTCA's Trade Winds. My guest today is Dr. Peter Ratching. He's a great educator, investor, philanthropist, and globetrotter, teaching at New York University, University of Reims, Universidade Católica Portuguesa Business School, and he also serves on the board of University of Auckland and the Toulouse Business School. Peter, welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Robin. Pleasure to be here. Well, thank you. It's so good to have you here, Peter. So, Peter, what would you like people to know about you? Well, you've pretty much done a substantive introduction. But yeah, so we basically have two major hats. One's a academic hat, and then I'm involved in business in various capacities in the what's called the alternative investment sector. So that's hedge funds, private equity. I'm on the board of a couple of companies and nonprofits, one of which we do together. That's right. That's right. So good. Let's talk about trade and business and, and sort of the, the contentious environment that we're currently in. How do you see the current regime of, of international trade? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a very interesting question, particularly in light of structural changes and the general narrative arcs and trajectories that we've seen. So I'd like to begin by kind of breaking it down in terms of just thinking about what is trade in its first principles, if you like. So we can perhaps go back to the um, political economist, the English political economist, David Ricardo, and his notion of comparative advantage, where essentially countries make what they're best at making. So we get a principle of efficiency out of international trade. Then there's also a principle of freedom, if you like. that uh, There's unfettered exchange of goods and services across transnational boundaries. And then finally, as a third plank of trade, if we want to create a kind of a three-pillared stool, in addition to efficiency and freedom, there's a kind of symmetry of interests where national economies benefit as well as the glo global economy within a broader rule-based system. So it's important, I think, for us to frame trade as global and relatively globally integrated. It makes no sense, in my mind at least, when we have anti-globalists, which we've seen in, in various countries, you know, railing against the global impulse because capital, labor, goods and services are globally traded. And we want them to be that way for, for a functioning international order. Also, I think it's important to think of trade in terms of, of mitigating surpluses and deficits that exist in the world. So basically, you know, if one country has a surplus of certain goods or services, another country that's in a deficit position can, can sop them up. And this also occurs for commodities and, and for the ultimate commodity, which is the, the US dollar, which is the global reserve currency, the mechanism in which international trade occurs. So essentially, you know, we see where, where the surpluses of dollars, these get recycled in various ways. So for instance, we saw the petrodollars that accumulated with the rapid rise in industrialization and the OPEC cartel being recycled into the the dollarized banking system. So, you know, so that's part of the whole regime of international trade as well. So, you know, I think it's very important to, to take trade out of its most fundamental basic level of understanding and think of it as a, as a system. It's, it's almost like what the circulatory system is to the body 
and we have you know veins and arteries and blood circulating with nutrients and oxygen etc that's the international trading system i think you know this this global biological metaphor is, is a kind of interesting way to think about it yeah no it, it's very interesting how you break it down like because that's it's actually a very good question like what is trade when we talk about trade and you 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 point to to the fact that it's it's really about creating competitive advantages for for countries and industries there's a freedom notion i think a very important one that that is often uh, forgotten and i agree with the mitigation of surpluses and and, and deficits and and creating proper trade balances. So, so that sort of takes us to what, what are the challenges? Because if you look at this, the, the situation today in, in international commerce, there's trade sanctions, there's tariff barriers going up, there's import restrictions. You mentioned the role of the dollar, but there's so many currency controls now out there in, in so many places. So how do you look at the breaking down of the system, if you like? like will they last? Will countries double down on them? And, and, and what, what else is there as a challenge to, to, the, to, the, to the international trading regime? Yeah, no, that, that's a very good question because I think what we're seeing through the COVID crisis as one form of catalyst to global supply chains and to trade regimes, and then geopolitical tensions, we're, we're seeing all these forces being brought to bear, these exogenous forces that are challenging the, the system, as it were, the, the basic infrastructure of the trade system as we know it, both its physical infrastructure we, you know, we saw the blockage of the Suez Canal and understand that vulnerability. But there's, there's also the, the political infrastructure because ultimately trust and, and basically conforming to the rule-based system that's set up you know, in broad brushstrokes is the, is the lifeblood of, of the system. So in its original conception, you know, as we transition from mercantilism to this more liberalized regime of trade, ultimately the hope on the part of the architects who set up you know, the, the system we now have, the hope was that with fluid movement of goods and services, with, with trade being liberal, if you like, the trade routes will, would also be conduits of ideas. So, so the liberalizing idea would, would kind of percolate across and around the world. But we know that that's not necessarily true, right? So in, in essence, to your point, Insofar as we say we see barriers and sanctions and so forth, these are not only sanctions against you know, goods and services, but they're also barriers, they're impediments to the free flow of this broader conception, this kind of first order or first principle notion of trade as a, as a liberalizing or liberal phenomenon, right? So, so this is very interesting. Just trying to trying to see see the trade in, in a broader context, the broader ideational context of the world. Yeah, and that brings us sort of to what is this international trade infrastructure and is it adequate actually to deal with what's what's going on in the world today? I mean, at the end, the, the both IMF, the WTO were, were coming off the, the Bretton Woods agreements, very very based on 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 the the, the Treaty of Westphalia, right? It's sovereign it's sovereignty based. And so so is the, the current infrastructure and there was a whole contentious election around the, the new director general for the WTO. What is the reform agenda there? But then also making making the link to to technology, to the whole the fact that the digital infrastructure, the digital globalization, is not limited or restricted by by, by sovereignty. So, do you think that that this whole notion of of how Bretton Woods came to the current trade infrastructure needs to be completely revamped, also taking into account the impact of technology companies and and the impact of technology on our lives and on, on trade in general. 
Yeah, no, that, that's a very, very substantive and profound point you just made, uh, Robin. So yeah, the, the Westphalia framework of national boundaries and respect for sovereignty is very much under challenge through the internet, through regimes of e-commerce, and basically governments previously reserved the right to, to tax and to control flows, right, which they no longer necessarily are even cognizant of what's happening. Technologists, the, the sort of anti-statist version of the tech, technologist or te technocrat is lauding the notion of blockchain and decentralization as a phenomenon that's going to basically push the state into the background. So yeah, so basically trying to come to terms with all these tensions is the major challenge of those who are the architects of the new paradigm. Also, it's interesting because we're, we're now very much at a cultural crossroads in that we have you know, the two major forces that have kind of emerged in the, the domain of global chip trade, the US and China, essentially bringing clashing values to the table. I think, you know, and I'm not saying this with, with any kind of normative gloss as to you know, which should necessarily be preferred, even though I might have a private view in that regard, but basically you know, there, there's a very deep-rooted Chinese notion of mispronouncing the word, but mianji, which means saving face, right? Which is antithetical to the notion of transparency. So as we come out of the COVID domain, you know, it's very important that China positions itself as having handled the situation best and its economy is the most resilient, etc. which might be true, but it's, it's also very much colored by this need to basically save face and present the, the best version of the self so how do we how do we mitigate that deeply rooted cultural impulse against the countervailing force, which is oh we want transparency, we want acknowledgement of fault, right? When there's breakdown, we want to be able to point to it and say yes, this this rule has been broken or this regime has been transgressed, etc. So it's not clear how how we really navigate this very deep rooted ideological tension. And then, of course, not to mention the other tensions you know, of free market capitalism versus more centralized controlled economies, etc. So that this is the core challenge that we're, we're, we're in a situation where previously, there was a dominant value system that was being imposed. And granted, you know, their critics of it would say, oh, this put the global south at a disadvantage, etc. Now we've got two competing value systems that we have to somehow try to navigate and, you know, and figure out how to create forms of compromise if one is not going to dominate the other. Yeah, I think you, you went straight to the core of it, Peter. It's, it's at the center of international commerce is, is now more than ever this, this U.S.-China trade relationship, which is obviously breaking down. And you raise a very important point that it's, it's really more about clash of two competing value systems of both societal and, and how we look at commerce. So where do you see this go? These, the, the, the clash of those two, two competing value systems, because countries from around the world are already picking one over the other. And you see these, these large two blocks popping up. So where, where do you see this, this go? You think that, that things will calm down over time and they will find a balance between those two value systems or do you see this more as a, 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 a continuous clash? 
Yeah, I mean, I think the, the nature of this, the tensions or the contradictions between the two systems means that they're prone to, to be in conflict in, in some measure, right? But at the same time, the hope from, I, I guess they're different schools of thought, but the hope from the more optimistic school of thought is that ultimately the imperatives of integration and the fact that there's this notion that ultimately everyone benefits from a more stable regime where we can also mitigate structural uh, imbalances as well, that that is in the best interests of both of these two dominant parties. So you know, one of the, the factors associated with the Chinese miracle, we want to call it that, you know, this rapid industrialization and economic growth, has been the way that they've managed labor you know, with the system of importing labor from the provinces into cities as kind of migrant workers, etc. So there's been this labor arbitrage. But the corollary of that is that you know, China's been importing, uh, excuse me, exporting deflation around the rest, uh, into the rest of the world. So basically, you know, post-COVID, there's all this talk of reshoring and people now wanting to, to manufacture things that were previously offshored in-house or in their own home countries, but are they willing to accept the higher prices that will be a necessary corollary in systems where labor is more expensive, for example? So, you know, all of these, I think it's easy to come up with the diagnoses, but the actual solutions are much more complex. You know, just like, you know, we have all these conferences about climate change and we need to do X and Y, but the kinds of trade-offs necessary very difficult to execute and to figure out. Yeah, and, and we already see that the, the, the tremendous political backlash. Right? You just said it; like uh, it, it, it needs to be. There needs to be a system where everyone can benefit uh, from the regime. And at the at the core of election outcomes worldwide is really also the notion that there's there's inequality, right? And is the is the economy inclusive for 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 everyone? And you touched upon the whole climate uh, change negotiations, which is, of course, tremendously important. But will will our trade infrastructure be able to make sure not uh, a tremendous amount of people will be left behind? Uh, will 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 we include everyone in in how we 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 create this this new economy and 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 look at how we deal with the environment? So again, that people are not being left behind because the political consequences, the backlashes that we see from being uh, people being left out, is. Is very disruptive. Yeah, absolutely. The the value vacuums that are created as a result, you know, cause these pernicious and toxic forces to emerge. And then the question, and a corollary to what you just said, is the rapid advance of technology and automation, which is another factor in the equation, disintermediating labor. And you know, the president of the United States talked about you know, finding new jobs for people who will be displaced in the oil sector. It's not that easy, right? And, and even harder for people who will be put out of work based on you know, tech or AI. We've heard you know, absurd politicians say, oh, we'll teach them how to code. That's easier said than done. Maybe they don't want to, yeah, right. want to learn how to code, right? firstly. And secondly, you know, it requires you know, certain capacities. Um, yeah. So, you know, it might be the case that we have to really start to think seriously about some sort of 
shape or form of UBI mm -hmm. uh, to address this issue you pointed out of inclusivity and people not being left out. Yeah, that's a very interesting idea, very interesting concept, because we've been really, because of COVID, propelled into what I like to call a, a digital form of globalization. And so that sort of takes us to, to, to COVID itself. Like, let's talk a little bit about the, the, the COVID pandemic we've all been, been living through now for, for over a year. So where, where will this COVID crisis, you think, cause a more lasting impact on, on, on our society, but also like, so on how we live our lives, how we conduct business, so how we learn, how we teach? What, what, what do you think will fundamentally shift it and, and make, have made a lasting impact on us? Yeah, I mean, um, one of the obvious ones is obviously the acceleration of digital transformation. I mean, the fact that we can have this conversation and we're both on different sides of the Atlantic is in, in some sense thanks to COVID. So basically, you know, that, that I think is certainly something that is here to stay, this idea of the digital future, remote work, working from home, a lot of people we speak with trying to think about how they rethink the notion of having office space since clearly people don't need to be affected by necessarily showing up to an office so you know, th these are immediate kind of first order considerations and then you know, at a more abstract second order level it's really you know you know we have questions about the psychological impact you know positives or negatives people worry about generations of kids who've not had access to peer-based learning and playing with friends. So you know, will, will that have some uh, future impact on their, their developmental growth? But I think supply, the vulnerability of global supply chains is something everyone's concerned about, that when crises hit, you know, how do we think about business continuity, etc. And overall, I think it's really a good lesson about just the vulnerability of systems, you know, human biological systems that you know, this tiny virus can you know, make us a little sick, to you know, systems of you know, how we interact, to just you know, the, the whole nature of the air, you know, airline and travel. And, you know, it, it's really a pretty deep-rooted and uh, far-reaching phenomenon. And I, I think we're, we're just beginning to appreciate what the, the longer-term ripple effects will be. Yeah, and that sort of brings us to, to business itself, right? You mentioned the disruption of supply chains. Look, uh, car factories are are, uh, are closing because of shortage of semiconductors and there's so much else going on. You mentioned, uh, the, of course, we all know what happened in the Suez Canal. One ship strands and it, it completely disrupts uh, supply chains all over the world. So, so Peter, you, you work in asset management as well. You, you travel the world now virtually, I assume. So, so what, when you speak with investors, uh, what, what are they focused on now, given, given this context? And, and I would imagine investors are forward-looking. Like what, are, what, what are they seeing in the future? What are they investing in? Yeah, that, that's a very, very interesting question. So I think one of the, the big things that perplexes people in financial services is really the extent to which now economies are really adjuncts of central bank policy. So central banks have almost become proxies for the market and they've compressed risk premium, they're throwing out credit you know, in a liberal and perhaps even profligate fashion. So you know, essentially the core postulate of the asset management enterprise is risk-taking 
and compensated for the risk that one is seeking to be exposed to, right? That there's this idea of a risk premium that you're trying to capture. That when the risk-free rate has been dialed down to zero, and in some instances is almost practically real terms negative, then that brings down risk premia across the board. So essentially, people are taking risk. Let's say, you know, a 100-year Argentinian bond, um, bond risk, but not being compensated in a manner commensurate with the risk that they're actually being exposed to. So, so this is a major dilemma, trying to figure out, like, what, what's now the rational relationship between price and, you know, how do you price risk appropriately? And then on a more general level, you know, I think it's fair to say that we're in a massive credit super bubble all over again with the proliferation of credit, just unprecedented expansion across you know, all areas, private, public, etc. So will this lead to a, a future scenario of credit contraction and consequently throw up you know, a lot of distress so that distressed assets become the, the sweet spot? And it's a very interesting question. How to price risk and, and looking at, at the, the the monetary expansion happening has been happening for a while now. You would think for investors to make those decisions, it looks more that everyone is just speculating at this point and, and actually getting very high returns on that speculation. And it's completely not correlated with that that pricing of risk that that you just mentioned. Yeah, a deli, you know, a hundred million dollar deli in New Jersey, <laughs> right. coin, right, game stock, etc. And also, you know, to your point about decentralization and, you know, power shifts, it's interesting to see the emergence of this cohort of retail investors, right, that is moving the market in significant ways. Yeah, in limited moments, but certainly it's non-trivial. And then you, you start talking about central banks, I mean, there's this whole question about whether we're, going, we're transitioning into a, an inflationary phase as well. You know, as we know, inflation really has two phenomena associated with it. One is increases in the money supply, which we've seen happening in spades, and then also increasing velocity of money, you know, how quickly money turns. So velocity has not reached alarming levels, but you know, the expansion of money supply certainly has. So the question is, you know, will this lead to, to inflation? Central bankers tell us, oh, don't worry, you know, they, they have the tools to, to rein it in. But it remains to, to be seen just to, how this is going to play out. Economists who follow it so far suggesting that rather than generalized inflation, we'll see pockets of inflation here and there. But that's what they said about the housing crisis. You know, famously, Alan Greenspan said there's no housing bubble. They're just you know, areas where housing prices inflated and these will self-correct. So this remains to be seen. Yeah, it, it, I think it's it's just very worrisome huh? because so, something will have to give at some point. Markets remain at, at peak levels. Uh, they, they've been, I, I think, priced for perfection but for a very long time. So at some point, something will have to give. What's your take on that like, as, as to where and when? It's very hard to predict the, the where and when, but as we know from history, inflation disproportionately infect, affects the poor. You know, we've, we've seen how hyperinflation, you know, when it hits, countries and just the devastation it causes and the commensurate political instability and, you know, and all the other social ills. So, yeah, I mean, hopefully we're not going to move into a, a period of 
troublesome, troubling inflation. Obviously, a certain level of inflation is desirable and, in fact, uh, manufactured uh, by policy. But you know, when, when, how does the tipping point happen is a, is a question that we, we need to, to think about. I think we already see this happening in certain more emerging markets where currencies are devaluating at, 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 uh, at very high rates where inflation is really creeping up. So that's hopefully not... Uh, so, so where do you see the US dollar as, as sort of the, the world's like reserve currency? How do you see the value of the dollar moving versus the emerging markets economies? Do you see weakness in the dollar ahead of us as well? Yeah, I mean, I think the, as long as there's the global economy is dollarized and there's demand for the dollar, this is wind in the sails for propping it up. Basically, it's, it's also a storehouse of value in, in times of crisis. There's a flight to quality, which still tends to be a, a flight to dollarized instruments like the treasury, treasury bills and bonds. So basically, you know, I don't see any immediate threat to the dollar, nor do I see a breakdown dollarized global, global trading regime. Though obviously, you know, China in the long run, probably has some ambition to replace the dollar, but it comes you know, at its own peril because then the Chinese currency will necessarily have to appreciate and they can't allow that to happen un- until they've developed a sufficiently robust domestic consumption engine. Presently, you know, they, just, they just don't have the capacity to, to, base, to absorb their production capacities. So they're dependent on global trade. So what we'll see, I mean, it's interesting the extent to which these big shifts can be architected or these shifts happen as a result of some kind of natural evolution. But we're certainly in, in interesting times, use the Chinese proverb, and, and we're certainly in a phase of transition. Interesting times for sure. And, and so if Peter... That takes me to to a different subject here. That you're also a teacher, a great teacher, and and I know that you used to gather with your students on Sunday mornings at the local bakery, you know, being very generous with your time. So I, I was just thinking about the, the the future. Sort of what what are changes that you have seen with students uh, over the years? Like how do your students see the world, their future now, as opposed to maybe years ago when you know, coming off all those in, intensive conversations you had with your your students, your many students. Yeah, so that, that's interesting. You know, the topics I teach tend to be oriented towards business and finance and entrepreneurship. So have exposure to a particular cohort of the student population. Previously, they used to be pretty universally oriented towards, you know, going on to Wall Street or you know, working in, in startups or investment banks and so forth. That seems to be changing somewhat. You know, I think there's a greater sense of precarity associated with being a student vis-a-vis the future. Also, the costs of education have risen astronomically you know, to really, truly absurd levels that strike me as unsustainable. Students are very interested in environmental issues today. And then there's, there's another interesting tension within the, the whole project of education in that on one hand, students now are exposed to, to notions of you know, puzzling complexity, like they'll dabble in a class in quantum physics and think about quantum entanglement and superpositioning and 
know, all these weird notions that the physical world isn't what we think it is. You know, a particle can be in two places at once and observing a particle changes its behavior, etc. And on the other hand, in with regard to their political views, they tend to be very fixed on just a singularity of perspective, which is that politics is about brute power and the political defines all contours of the life world, which is very interesting because on one hand, it's useful to think politically and how does power function in different contexts, but it's also useful to think that not every single domain of all our activities is necessarily amenable to being politicized and politicized based on a very singular and um, you know, ultimately Marxist definition of what politics is, which politics, which is that politics reduces to to matters of power. So, so this tension between, you know, on one hand, hey, the world is complex, the world is nuanced you know, at the level of quantum physics, but you know, but in lived experience, it reduces to just you know matters of power. Is very strange kind of cognitive dissonance. I have a good friend who wrote a book called The Master and His Emissary, which is about the divided brain, how in fact, you know, constitutionally as creatures, our brains are divided between a left hemisphere and a right hemisphere. And even though we need both hemispheres for everything, the two hemispheres attend to the world in different ways. So it's interesting, it's almost as if, you know, left hemisphere thinking of breaking things down and reducing things to, you know, some singular phenomenon. The left hemisphere thinking has, has just come to dominate how we view social life, which seems to me to be problematic. And it's certainly not a recipe for a well-integrated, harmonious interior self, right? If everything is hyper-politicized and the world sucks, and, you know, there's power in all the crevices of you know, everything one does. That, yeah, that's that's very interesting. And and so, Peter, because you you of course you teach in, in many different places and countries, and and I assume student bodies are very international. But do you see differences? For, I'm just saying, France versus New Zealand versus Portugal versus New York, with, with as it comes to the students and sort of their attitude and their their view of the world. Yeah, I mean, obviously that there's cultural difference, but I think increasingly there's a kind of homogeneity as well to certain versions of. What is being presented in academia? I think we need to recover a notion of critical thinking and also the, a willingness to entertain views that, you know, although you might not hold them and they're unpopular, it's it's worth actually just exploring them as a thought experiment because that's how we we cultivate nuance and we more attuned, if you like, to complexity. So I think that that's something that we need to very vigorously to preserve within the academic enterprise. But I, you know, but I think the general perspective of young people and their futures seems to be a pretty universal phenomenon. You know, this idea of you know what does one do? Also, you know, there's a pretty significant desire to make a difference and and sustainability, as I said, and the environment, which is very highly in the thinking. It's interesting when you do projects in a class, or and if it's a FMCG, you know, say for a food-based company, the first move is to be, make the food plant-based, and that's that's kind of interesting and, and admirable. Well, I'm, I'm definitely encouraged by the fact that you say that that the young people do want to make a difference because sometimes I 
I ask myself, are we, you know, open enough to, to, to reflect on the world around us and, and on self reflection as well. So that's, that's, that's very, very encouraging, encouraging to hear. So, so, so Peter, as a teacher at the end of the day, like you put so much time and effort in, in working with your students sort of what, what drives you as an educator? Why, why do you love doing what you do here? Oh, in the educational domain, it's just simply because it, in the course of teaching and learning, actually, it keeps one fresh. So just to give a concrete illustration through a particular seminar I'm doing with students at NYU, came across a very interesting idea related to the times we're in. And it comes from a Vic person in VC called Peter Reinhardt. And yeah, then the students exposed me to it. It's living above the API. API stands for Application Programming Interface. So, so much of our world is now related to technology. And we interact with the UI, the user interface. But behind the UI is the API. And the API is directing choices. So, someone like an Uber driver lives below the, the API because Basically, the API decides you know, who you pick up, what route you take, how much you make, etc. So, so this idea of living above the API is, you know, how can we not be just simply directed in all our choices, our purchases, um, the route we take when we open our phone and, and the GPS is saying, go this way, that ultimately computers are directing all of our behavior, which is a natural encroachment upon freedom and agency. So it's things like this that motivate why one should be one being around young people is such a pleasure because they're keeping you fresh and current and keeping your brain alive, as it were. So yeah, so it's it's, it's keeping your brain alive. <laughs> that's that is that's a good one. So yeah, no, and and it's it's so true. It's it also what keeps the brain alive, right? Is is traveling, and and I know you're such an avid traveler and and live in in so many places around the world, and I'm always curious sort of and i know it's, it's a kind of question like what's your favorite place but it's more i'm intrigued why you would pick a certain place as as a place you'd really want to be that intrigues you that's interesting yeah i mean pretty much most places have intriguing things about them yeah i mean picking places yeah it's, it's interesting so had this lifestyle growing up of bouncing around some different countries so it's pretty much something I'm used to from being young. But beyond that, the general quality of life in places, I think, for me, at least, is tied to the extent to which one can be connected to nature, food, you know, cultural activities. Also, increasingly, weather seems to feature. And it's nice to go and have selective experiences of winter, but you know, slogging through dark days with snow and ice you know, just isn't something I now relish in midlife if you like so so you're saying you're missing the the snowy new york days yeah or boston yeah boston <laughs> and yeah. yeah well good well peter it's just a last question and and it's it's a it's a very open question so so what what can you share with us that you sort of never shared before well if i shared such a thing i'd have to kill you no, so it's anyway. so good. We, we're so good. We're doing this remotely. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean basically, okay, something that just came to mind, and actually, you will appreciate it, is both of us have had occasion to work in different domains, and you've had a successful career in financial services, also. 
And it's interesting, something that fascinates me is just how there are certain people in the work environment who are psychopaths or sociopaths, and they get away with it. So, you know, right now there's a big flap in the United States about the well-known producer on Broadway in a film and he's won, you know, old Emmys, Tonys, Oscars, etc. And it was well known that he treated everyone very poorly, you know, threw a hot potato at someone's head, etc. And now it's all coming to light. And I've known a lot of people who worked for him and you know and had just horror stories. So yeah, I think it's really fascinating to try to figure out and understand like how what makes these people tick? How do they exist? How are they allowed to get away with what they do for so long? And finally, is it the culture of work that turns them into these monstrous characters? Or did they come into the workplace with some propensity to be like this? And then just the environment, rather than constraining and you know, refining behavior, did the reverse? It's just a fascinating question that continues to engage me because you know, just when you think you've cracked it, and there's another example that pops up that says, well, you know, how can this be allowed to have happened and gone on so long? And, and you know, we have personally, both of us, encountered this in our lives as well. That's very interesting. I really appreciate you sharing that. And this whole notion, by the way, of the culture of work would give us food for another at least half hour <laughs> conversation. So really, Peter, thank you so much for your time, for being generous and for, for joining the show. And I really look forward to, uh, to continuing our conversation. So thank you very much. Oh, you're very welcome. Um, thank you for all the interesting questions and for the chance to think about these big questions that we need to try and wrap our heads around. Thank you, Peter. If you have any ideas for future episodes, know someone who would be an inspiring guest, or just want to stay apprised of our show, please make sure to connect with our team via email at podcast at WTCA.org. Be sure to head over to podcast.wtca.org and subscribe to the show. We will see you soon.